0: The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. A few years ago, I listened to an audiobook About a small town in England that was affected by the bubonic plague. Generally speaking, I read literature that is nonfiction with my eyes and I read uh, fiction with my ears. This was a fiction book, however, it was placed in a very real place, a a very small village in England. It was set on this place that had been radically affected by the bubonic plague. And mainly it set its attention on one family that was just about half a mile outside of that local village. And for the first half of the book, the author would regularly make note when the family could hear the church bell ringing. And I kept thinking to myself, and this must not have been a very religious family because they're never at church, or maybe this was just a way for the town to tell time, but then about halfway through the book, it is revealed that every time you heard that bell ringing, it was to declare that another person in the village had died. It was an incredibly sad read, and eventually in that town, every single person died, and at the very end, there was no one to ring the bell. But that poem by john Donne became much more real to me it's a poem i'm sure you've heard it's a poem written in 1624 became more understandable to me when i had read that book have you ever heard the poem that says no man is an island entire unto himself every man is a piece of the continent a part of the main if a clod be washed away by the sea th- then europe is the less as well if a promontory were as well as any manner of thy friend or thy own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind, and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Have you heard that? Has anyone else ever heard that poem? Was anyone required to memorize that in school? I'm just curious. Oh, just a few, just a few. In our text today, we are going to see that the death bell rang for two members of the early church. The metaphorical bell strings were ringing loudly and clearly for us so that we can look at their negative example set forth by Ananias and Sapphira and look into their lives so that we know what we are called not to do. But as we look into their story, we will be looking into a mirror. The word of God reveals that this sin that they committed is actually present very clearly in our own heart, and I hope that you will see how that bell has tolled for you. But before we venture into the lives of these two swindlers, let's first get settled here in our context. Today we return to our study of the book of Acts, if you hadn't already guessed. It would be helpful for you if you go ahead and open your Bible to Acts chapter 4, verse 32. This history book that we call Acts or the Acts of the Apostles was written for us meticulously penned by Dr. Luke and is designed to reveal the way that the early church went from being a fearful group of men and women in an upper room to spreading across all of Europe and Northern Africa and Central Asia and even into Upper Russia. We learn about how all of this begins to spread out. How does that take place? That takes place by the work of the Holy Spirit, and we see him arrive at Pentecost, and already, as we've covered earlier on in this year, the religious rulers were very uncertain about how to squelch this new movement that they assumed would be completely finished when they crucified the Savior. How is it that after they killed this Jesus, there are still so many people proclaiming his name? When we left the book of Acts in the spring, we finished out chapter 4 on a very high note. The church was thriving. It was growing. It was unified. We read, starting in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, Now the full number of those who, were, who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet this is a strong church. This is a unified church. This is a spiritually minded church. This is a church that does exactly what Pastor Mike was talking about earlier of not putting their needs first, but considering the needs of others. But then we turn the page and we're going to see that there was sin in the camp. Chapter five, verse one, but Already, we see this word indicates a contrast from what we have seen before, specifically a contrast from Barnabas. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... To test the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is a sobering and hard hitting text. This is a challenging text, so please join me as I pray that the Lord would help us to receive it rightly. Our Father God in heaven, we look at the events of this story and we join with the early church in fear of the Lord. We pray, Lord, that that would be the response of our heart today, not that we would be hardened or that we would be rejecting or that we would be refusing to hear what the Spirit is teaching the church. Rather, Lord, I pray that we would indeed tremble before you, recognizing your great holiness. Lord, I pray that today as we dig into the meaning of these words, that each person here will find way to repent and to pursue Christ and to pursue holiness. Lord, I ask that as we consider the events that took place here, the very serious, even deadly events that took place here, that likewise we would have a very deadly, serious attitude towards our own sin. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our approach to the text this morning is going to be very simple. We're just going to examine the following two points. Point number one, hypocrisy. And point number two, holiness. Let's begin with hypocrisy. Let's just ask the question what were Ananias and Sapphira thinking? What were they thinking? Why would they do something so clearly evil in the sight of God? And the answer I think is very simple. I don't think they were thinking about God at all. Rather, their entire focus was on what the people of the church thought about them. Joseph from Cyprus, this man who was so godly and so gracious and so kind, along with many others in the church, but particularly it notes this one, sold property, he sold a field, and he gave all of the money to the church so that everyone literally looked at him and gave him a new name. They stopped calling him Joseph and started calling him Barnabas, son of encouragement. Why was this such a big deal? Why was this so significant for the church? Well, remember, the church right now is in its infantile stage. It is very young. And do you remember how it is that this church came to be? Many Christians, including Barnabas, was not actually from Jerusalem. All the way back in Acts chapter 2, we learned that there were converts from all over the Roman Empire, from basically every region of the Roman stretch. People had come to Jerusalem, Jewish people, to celebrate the holiday. And as they were in that marketplace, they heard the word of the Lord and they were converted and they remained in Jerusalem rather than going back to their homeland. Naturally, this put a major strain on them financially. It's not like they could just go to an ATM and pop in their debit card and pull out a couple hundred bucks every once in a while. No, back then you brought whatever you needed for the trip and you did not travel with excess money because that made you a major target for bandits and it put you in significant danger. So people would only travel with enough wealth necessary for their journey. And none of these people were intending to stay long-term in Jerusalem. But here, They have come to salvation in Jesus Christ, and now they do not want to leave knowing that there is no church in their homeland. We're going to see that is the case until roughly Acts chapter eight, verse one. And it seems that all of these people who were there are now becoming desperate. If they had any wealth, it was back in their own homeland and they had no access to it. So this is going to be a recurring problem that we encounter several times now in the book of Acts, until we see them scatter in chapter 8. So Barnabas saw the need, and he realized something, that he had a field, he had property in Jerusalem. And by selling that field, he was able to support many who had need. But selling a field is not a small issue. This was a foreshadowing, I think, of the fact that Barnabas was going to go out as a missionary, that he, he was so willing to give up of his property rights in that place. How is this different than our property? You might ask consider this property rights in Israel were very radically different than what we understand property rights to be here in the United States today. Land was scarce. There was very little of it in the promised land. And it was very important to the people that they hold on to their inheritance on Long Island. Property is very scarce and it's very valuable, but it rarely gets passed down for more than two or three generations. How many of you are living in your great-grandparents' house? I doubt many of you are. However, property in Israel was passed down for thousands of years. Property in Israel stayed within the family. You do not give up your land. In this time and this place, there were massive implications for your descendants if you sell off that property. In the Old Testament, God had put in place protections for people who were in poverty so that it would ensure after 50 years, property would return to the families who sold off their land due to hardship. But from what we can tell from history and from the scripture, that year of Jubilee never actually was practiced faithfully. It doesn't seem that they actually did this, that they actually returned the property to to whom it originally belonged. As far as we can tell, This was one of those laws that Israel always ignored. This field was Barnabas' link to his national homeland. This was the inheritance for his future generations in his family. But he lived in Cyprus. That's probably where he worked. In fact, being that he was from Cyprus, he was probably a trader because most people who lived in Cyprus were involved in the trade of wealthy goods in the Roman Empire. So he was probably a wealthy man. He was probably a man who had the ability to support himself if he were to go back home. But this was his national heritage and he was giving it up for the sake of Christ and for the betterment of those in the church. So selling this land was a big deal. And it would have been shocking to everybody who was there in the church. But even more, it was shocking when Barnabas took all of the proceeds for the field and then he took them and set them down at the apostles' feet. And he didn't give them an earmark and say, here's what I want you to do with this. He just laid it at their feet for them to do with it whatever they pleased. And the entire church would have been rejoicing over the great love that was displayed by this man. So now enters Ananias and Sapphira, and they see what's happening here. All these people are selling their goods, selling their furniture, selling off whatever they have in their house, and then Barnabas goes and just sells the whole thing and gives it all. And as this takes place, they are realizing that this is a way for them to have status within the church. They are looking at the need, though, and they are saying, I also have property, and they probably did genuinely care for the needs of the people who were suffering. I don't don't think we should ignore the fact that they actually did sell their land as well, and they actually did give of their earnings as well. Remember, they took most of the money and put it at the apostles' feet. They just kept some of it for themselves. In fact, they gave enough money that it was it was something they expected people to believe this was enough to get from the land they gave a lot to the church in other words this act of generosity that we see from Ananias and Sapphira is actually far greater than any act of generosity that has ever taken place in RGF since its inception these two were still being generous We have never seen anyone do something this outlandishly magnanimous in terms of generosity here at this church. What they did was enormously thoughtful and kind from the world standards. That's how it would have been initially received by the church when they walked up there and when Ananias put those money bags down there at the feet of the apostles. The heart of the church would have also likewise been melting like it did when they saw Barnabas do the same thing. But there was one major problem. And that is that as he was setting that money down, Ananias was doing so as a hypocrite. The word hypocrite comes to us directly from Greek. It is a Greek word. And it means simply that somebody is an actor. To put it more literally, it means that somebody is wearing a mask. He wanted everyone to think that he was entirely selfless, but he was lying. He displayed that. His motivation was quite the opposite than being selfless. He was actually being selfish by desiring that everyone looked to him rather than to Christ. Peter made it very clear to him that there was never any expectation that he give everything. Nobody said, Ananias, you must give us the full amount. In verse four, Peter says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, you didn't have to sell your land. You could have kept it, Ananias. Then he continued and said, after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? All this money that you're putting here, you could decide what to do with it. This is not a communistic regime where everyone is expected to just give into the common pool of wealth. You don't have to do this. Nobody is compelling you. When we talk about giving, the Bible says, do not give under compulsion. Nobody here is compelling you. Do not sell unless the Lord convinces you in your heart to do so unless the motive of your heart is just to advance the kingdom of God. That is why we give, but that was not the purpose of his heart. No, he could have easily said, well, you know, guys, this is 90% of what we made from selling our land. And there would have been no fault in that. But he said what he said so that he might be seen to be more holy and more righteous and more generous than he truly was. But the lie was just a symptom of the deeper issue of hypocrisy in his heart. When you read the Gospels, particularly when you read through the book of Matthew, which I'm noticing because I've been reading through it this week, you will find the harshest words that Jesus ever speaks are against those who practice religious hypocrisy. The most fiery sermon that Jesus ever preached is found in Matthew chapter 23 in which Jesus calls the scribes and the Pharisees hypocrites seven times to their faces. I want to briefly examine three examples from the Sermon on the Mount to remind you what Jesus has to say about hypocrites. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, it says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they might be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their words. Religious hypocrites pray to be seen and to be heard by others, not by God. Matthew 6, 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Another act of religiosity, fasting. I want everybody to know. I am really worshiping God. I am a better worshiper of the Lord than you do. In fact, many of the religious elites in Israel would fast twice a week, and they would do this intentionally to make themselves look pathetic so that everybody would know, oh, they're fasting today. Jesus continues on and tells the people, when you are fasting, dress nicely and put oil on your head. Make it look like you're not fasting at all. No, 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 no. Don't let anyone but God know what you are doing. And the one that is most relevant for today's text, Matthew chapter six, verse two, when you give to the needy, Ananias, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets. And then he continues and gives the motive of the heart of the hypocrite so that they might be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. A hypocrite is somebody who does their actions just to be seen by men, but they give no regard to the heart of God. They are only interested in earthly accolades, earthly adulation. Hypocrites are the kind of people who wait to do something until they are certain somebody is watching them. Sapphira, likewise, operated as a hypocrite, only interested in advancing her family status in the church. She might not have concocted this plan. In fact, it seems like from the pronouns in the early part of the text that it was actually Ananias' plan, but she went along with him. And so in doing so, she was complicit in the sin by covering for her husband. But brothers and sisters, do not dare think for one moment that you or I are better than these two. I am preaching to a crowd of sinners, and I am preaching as a sinner. I am standing here incapable of being perfect. I am one who is presenting to you information about a perfect and holy and righteous God, but I myself have fallen far short. And so have you. Every single one of us puts on a mask when we come to church. Let's be real about that. Do we not? Every single one of us acts more moral when we are in this room than we do when we are pretty confident that no one in the church is watching us. We are playing to an audience as we put on our costumes I'm not just speaking for myself when I say that each one of us is far more likely to lie or to be rude or to be selfish or to display sinful anger or to tell wicked jokes or to lust or to be unloving or to do anything else that you want to fill in the blank with. We would be much more likely to do that outside of these four walls than we are in this room. And if your motivation is to avoid sinning just to stop looking like a bad person, just to have a better reputation, then you're always going to go right back to sinning when you're alone or when you're just with your family or when you're just with people who will never overlap with your church family. Notice that Ananias and Sapphira both had opportunities to repent. Ananias, when he went forward, could have said, this is just a percentage. He had a chance. He could have come clean when he was presenting that money. And then in verse 8, Peter asks the wife, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. He gives her an opportunity to repent. And she said, yes, for so much, a death knell. A hypocrite is somebody who pretends to be more holy than they really are. And God hates that. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to those who see themselves as sinners in need of forgiveness. He gives grace to the humble. Consider the messenger in this story. Peter is the one telling this guy and this lady, you lied. Peter said this. He is the one who verbally condemns this couple. Yet he himself lied and denied Christ three times. I don't know the man, he said with a curse. So what's the difference? Why is it that Peter was spared and these two were struck dead? Well, part of the answer, I think, is repentance. When offered the opportunity to confess and repent, Peter did so before the Lord and he was forgiven. Ananias and Sapphira, they stuck to their guns and they just hoped for earthly accolades and instead they will be eternally remembered as hypocrites who lied to the Holy Spirit. Yes, that's what Peter says, that they lied to the Holy Spirit. As we learn in Psalm chapter 51, all sin is primarily directed at God. Although other people are affected negatively by the scattershot of sin, the bullet is aimed at God himself. That is what David says, against you and you alone have I sinned. Uriah is in the grave. Bathsheba is over there pregnant. The whole nation has been lied to. And eventually his own son dies. Against you and you alone have I sinned. How is it possible that he could say such a thing? Because even though Uriah and Bathsheba and the entire nation and especially his own son were dramatically affected as collateral damage, he was essentially and primarily sinning against a holy God. When you sin, your sin has consequences for the whole church. It affects all of us. You hurt the church by your seemingly personal and private sin. There is no such thing as personal or private sin. It pollutes Us all, a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. Think of what that looks like. Leaven is this seemingly invisible thing that you can't sense in the bread. If you just take two pieces and you set them side by side, initially they they look identical, but one of them is infected. And one of them is going to begin to bloat and to change. And he says, that is what sin is like. It is hidden. It is undetectable until it's not. It affects us all. It brings sin into the camp, which results in God's eventual judgment of the church. Your sin affects us all, and my sin affects you. But primarily, primarily, your sin is against God, and your sin drags the name of Jesus through the mud. Which brings us now to our second point this morning, which is holiness. This text is ultimately not about lying, although it should cause you to seek to be more honest. It's ultimately not just about generosity, although I encourage you to be faithful in your giving. And it's ultimately not even really about hypocrisy, although I hope that I have faithfully demonstrated that you should not be a hypocrite. This story is really all about the holiness of God. I have a good friend who, he's a civilian, but he works alongside the military. He goes to the Middle East a few times a year to train them um, And one of the things that he told me once, this is one of the most interesting stories that he's ever shared, is about when he would go do trainings in the city of Bahrain. There's a saying, apparently, that Allah cannot see what is happening in the center of Bahrain. His eyes don't reach that place. So this is like the Las Vegas of the Muslim world where people just go there and do whatever they want, whenever they want, to whomever they want. They change what they wear, they change what they eat, they change what they drink, they change what they say, and they change with the people they sleep with because they think they're outside of God's scope of vision. And we can look at that and say, wow, those guys are crazy. That is absurd. What is wrong with them? Who would think that God can't see them? But we do that same thing every time we knowingly sin. We act like God is not watching us. We lie thinking, God won't notice this one. We act like God is a person like ourselves. God isn't seeing that lie that I'm telling. He can't hear me lie. He doesn't hear. We click on that link thinking, oh, God doesn't see. We act as though there are boundaries that God's not going to cross to look into our lives. That we somehow have built a wall he cannot cross over. But just like Ananias and Sapphira, we sin because we are only focused in getting away with something in the eyes of man. But Remember the words of Hebrews 4.13, perhaps the most terrifying verse in the New Testament. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Every single thing we do, we will give account. Even those of us who are in Christ, he is writing to a Christian audience. Listen those things that we've done, we will give account. And God saw the numbers on Ananias' contract. He saw the number of zeros there. He heard him seal that deal. He watched him shake that buyer's hand, just like he sees your browser history and he hears you yelling at your spouse and he watches you deceive your friends into thinking that you're something that you're not. But not only, not only does God see you, God is not like you. The word holiness really means something like otherness. It's God's differentness, his separateness, his not you-ness. He is altogether different from us. He is absolutely void of sin or even the desire for sin. He is pure and blameless. He is excellent in virtue. His morality is beyond comparison. His goodness is unparalleled. His righteousness is without spot or blemish or shadow of turning. His honor is unblemished. His integrity is eternally intact. That is not a description of you or of me. It should not be surprising that God killed two people who sinned. That should not be surprising to any of us. It should be surprising that God does not do that more often. When we sin, we are not just playing with fire. We are playing with the God, the all-consuming fire who created the universe and all that is in it. We are messing around thinking that he doesn't notice our sin. There are no little sins. Every one of them matters to the Lord. You will only understand, though, God's act of judgment here in this chapter if you first understand that God is absolutely within his rights to destroy anyone who even sins one time. He has the right to do that, and he would be very just to do that. God cannot lower his standards for you or for me. He is perfect, and therefore he requires that we likewise be perfect, which should remind us of the depths of grace that we have received from him. Why is it that God chose to dramatically end the lives of these two people at this moment, but he doesn't choose to do the same thing at all times? Allow me to offer you a possible reason. As a new and burgeoning church, it was vital that the Lord set a precedent that sin is not to be taken lightly. In a sense, this was the very first occasion of church discipline. Normally, God calls us, the church, to keep one another in check by accountability through church discipline. However... In this instance, God saw fit to strike these two down as an example. And the result is evident. We see it in verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is repeated, not just mentioned once, but it is repeated both when Ananias dies and again when Sapphira dies. It seems like she's the only one who hasn't already heard about this when she walks into the room because everyone is immediately filled with fear. And when practiced rightly, that is what church discipline is always supposed to do. It is to remind us that we are called to live holy lives before the Lord. We see the apostles carry out church discipline from this point forward. God doesn't intervene and just strike people dead from this point on. And Paul gives instruction about how churches are supposed to carry out church discipline. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and other places. But as an aside, I want you to know that many people have speculated about the state of the salvation of Ananias and Sapphira. Were these two people Christians? I mean, they were church members. They were known by the body. They were in the gathering. They were in the ecclesia. Apparently, these two people were the kind of people that would get away with it because everyone would have perceived them to be righteous and holy. So were these people Christians or were they unbelievers who had faked their testimonies well enough to make it into the church and get by the apostles' and get in? Here's the answer. I don't know. (laughs) I just don't know. I find compelling arguments on both sides. I've reached out to many pastors of many different churches over the past week and just got their perception on this. And it's interesting that probably about two thirds would say that they're unbelievers, but about a third would say, I think they were actually saved. However, it ultimately does not matter, which is why scripture does not tell us, but perhaps God was killing goats to protect the sheep. Perhaps God was killing sheep to protect the sheep. But it doesn't ultimately matter because we have warnings for both elsewhere in the New Testament. Both believers and unbelievers are warned. To you who are unsaved, I want to give clear warning. You are not promised another breath. You are not promised that you're going to make it through the rest of my sermon. God could stop your heart at this very moment. And the only reason you're alive right now is because he's been very patient with you. So before God, I plead with you, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus who forgives sinners like you and like me. Run to Jesus who, although he has every right to do this to you, to strike you dead and to eternally put you under his wrath, he took the wrath of God on himself so that he might save those who otherwise could not be set free. So trust in the Lord with all of your heart and be saved. But I also want to speak to Christians today about this. And please know it is made clear in other places, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that some Christians do get sick and even die prematurely because there is sin in their lives. I'm not saying, please don't hear me saying that all sickness is the result of sin. That is not the case. Sometimes God gives affliction for the purpose of our sanctification. However, I will state that it is clear there are occasions when the New Testament presents information that our sin can cause us to either become sick or even die because we are not living in accordance with the will of God. We see that the reason this event took place was to fill the church with fear, so that they were reminded of the holiness of God, and they were reminded of their insufficiency of righteousness, of their moral deficit, of their spiritual inadequacy. And that's what it's supposed to show us today as well. This was intentionally designed by God to motivate people to do what God speaks about in Philippians chapter two, verses 12 through 13, which says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, what are you called to do? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You better believe that those young men, those youth workers who carried out those bodies and put them in the ground, They were working out their salvation with fear and trembling at that moment, knowing that I am no better than that guy in the ground. And likewise, we should be responding as they did when they were covering up Sapphira's feet with dirt, saying... I must work out my own salvation with fear and with trembling, but no, that is not the end of the sentence because it states very clearly for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, if you are going to grow, if you are being transformed, if you are being sanctified, it is not because you have worked it out well. It's because God indeed has worked and produced that in you. So let's get down to where the rubber meets the road and, Finish out here with five closing applications. Application number one, give secretly. Earlier, we read the Sermon on the Mount, how Jesus told us to act not like the hypocrites in our giving. Don't be like the hypocrites who blow the trumpet in the street when they walk up there and carry their big money bags and dump them in that horn. Don't do that, Jesus says. But he says in the next two verses, chapter six, verses three and four, but when you give to the needy, Another indicating that a genuine disciple is a faithful giver. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving might be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Give generously. Give abundantly. Give joyfully. But when you do, give privately. I'm not just speaking about money here. We could focus in on The fact that Jesus here is specifically talking about money. And in our text today, it was specifically talking about money. But this is true of all our good works. That's true of all forms of hypocrisy. Don't just do what you do for attention from man. God hates that. But when you serve, do so even when you think nobody's watching. That's when your genuine character comes out. For God does see you. Application number two, when you are tempted to sin like Ananias, what are you supposed to do? I just want the world to think the best of me. I just want, I just want adulation and accolades and I just want everyone to, to love me. What do you do? You run to the cross. We read that he was tempted both by Satan and by his own desires. We see that at one point it says that Satan entered into his heart, which is by the way, one of the arguments made even by Pastor Mike, that perhaps these people were not saved it's a compelling argument. But notice he was tempted by the devil. We see that other believers were likewise tempted by the devil. Why is it that Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan? The devil himself was working in and through that situation in some manner. When you were tempted, it is possible that there is demonic or evil activity taking place in that act of temptation. However, ultimately, it comes down to the fact that he says, why have you conceived in your heart to do this thing? it ultimately comes down to the fact that this was the will of Ananias to carry out this sinful deed. And that is true for you as well. Remember that you are involved in that temptation. You do what you do because you love the things you're not supposed to love. So when temptation lands at your doorstep, remember that you're not alone and that God is with you. Remember that he loves you and that he desires for you to be like him. It's not that he has given you all of these commands just because he wants to stop all of your fun. He has given you these commands so that you might find real genuine joy in him. All that stuff that you're seeking joy from, all these sinful things, they just rot you to the core. They just destroy you. And God is protecting you by saying, no, don't touch. So run away from the counterfeit joy givers and run away from that temptation and run into the arms of Christ, the one who truly satisfies. Application number three, when you do sin, when you are a hypocrite and then you are confronted, don't hide it or attempt to cover it up. Sapphira did not know that her husband was already buried. She did not know for whom the bell had tolled earlier that day. All she knew was that she was committed to her false narrative for the sake of preserving her and her husband's reputation. So what did she do when she was confronted? When she was given an opportunity to repent, she lied and She died. When you are confronted with your sin, it is a gracious act of God. When you are confronted by your sin, that is a kindness that he is giving you opportunity to get it out on the table and to kill it, to draw it out and say, no more. This is where it stops by the grace of God. It's like knowing that you have cancer. You know it. You're aware that it's right here. You can feel something growing, some kind of a, a a large mass that is developing in your abdomen and you can sense that you are dying from it. But what do you do when you go to the doctor? My toe kind of hurts, doc. You know, it's just a little sore. Everything else, I'm doing okay though. Don't look up here. Don't poke around in the abdomen. No, everything here is fine. I'm all right. Just a little soreness here in my toe. And you take all of the attention away from where it needs to be. Eventually, that cancer is going to infect every other part of your body, and eventually it's going to become evident that it's there. Even the people who are not doctors, who are not professionals, will look at you and say, there is something wrong happening in that person's body. Eventually, that cancer will come over you, and eventually will even kill you if it is not killed. Your sin is not going to stay within the fences that you have built for it. It is going to come out, and people are going to know. It's going to come raging out into other areas of your life until eventually everything is infected if it is not dealt with properly. So when you are confronted, it's just like a doctor, say, Doc, I've got this thing. You're right. You, you can see there's a problem here. Let's cut that open. Let's, let's get it out. Let's cut that thing out of my life. I don't want anything to do with it. I know it is killing me. So name your sin know what it is, know your weaknesses, know where you are unfaithful and have faithful brothers and sisters help you kill it by the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. This, by the way, is one of the great advantages to having a community group that surrounds you and asks you probing questions that help get at where your real deep needs are in your spiritual life. They're like the doctor involved in applying the word of God to you, the medicine of God's scripture to your heart saying, okay, that's what we have to do to get that out of there. Listen, if you are a Christian, you have the ability to run from sin. You have the ability to have that surgically removed from your life. And you need to do that so that you might be conformed into the image of Christ. But you're not going to do it by yourself. You're not going to do it if you are hiding in darkness. That's why we are called to walk in the light as he is in the light. Don't hide your sin because when you do, it just festers. You must bring it out. And so I am calling on you, whether you're in a community group or not, although I believe that's the best place to do it at our church, have accountability for the purpose of sin eradication. So you might, by the power of Christ and by the word of God and by the working of the spirit in you, have the help of the church that we are called to link arms together. One of the greatest disadvantages to having a cultural Christianity in this nation is the fact that people are so used to walking into a church building and walking back out and having no one ever talk to them about their sin. Having nobody ever really confront them about where they need to grow. That is a shame. That is not what the church looks like anywhere in the New Testament. Application number four, kill your love of your reputation. The Proverbs make it clear that having a good reputation is good. It's desirable. You want to have a good reputation, but you want to have a reputation that is accurate that people actually see you as you are, not as you pretend or imagine yourself to be. Consider Proverbs 22, one, it says, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. So I'm not saying that you should basically just say, I don't care what people think of me. That's not biblical. I know a lot of young people always say this. I don't care what people think of me. Ironically, usually the people that say that are the ones that try the hardest to make it look like they don't care that people, what people think of them. But essentially, everyone does care what you think of them deep down. You're not supposed to have a laissez-faire, I don't care what you think of me attitude. Rather, you should care that people see you and they should look at you and see Christ. That's the desire, but not if you're pretending. The New Testament is very clear that your reputation does matter In fact, one of the qualifications of elder is that you might be thought well of by outsiders. Your reputation does matter. But here's what I mean when I say kill your love of your reputation. I mean, stop worshiping yourself. Stop thinking that confessing your sin to another person would cause you to be an outcast. You're among sinners. You're not helping yourself by attempting to hide it. You're just putting on another layer of face paint for your hypocrite mask. There's freedom in being known. There is freedom in being set free from the power of sin that says, you can't ever tell anybody. Nobody can ever know that this is in your life. There is is freedom when that is out there and you can deal with it. There is peace knowing that if you confess your sin, Christ is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of unrighteousness. There's strength in knowing that you have brothers and sisters that care for you and that link arms with you, and that they fight the battle with you, and that they pray for you against the world and the flesh and the devil, they fight with you to help you. And there's joy in standing before the world with a clear conscience. It's not much greater than saying, I've got nothing to hide. Knowing that there is nothing that you have to pull out anymore, that you can just be seen for who you really are. You don't need a mask. Application number five. Never use the grace of God as a license to sin. Romans chapter six, verse one says, what shall we say then? Already continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Don't you dare think for even a moment that just because you're a Christian, God is now okay with you dipping your toes into the ocean of sin. God is not pleased. Instead, see the grace of God and rejoice. Peter was a liar. Peter betrayed Jesus. Peter went out to the entire group that was, if there was anybody who could have stopped that trial at that moment, it was Peter. And Peter says, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. But he was forgiven and his life was radically transformed. And wherever you are in your walk with Christ today, you're not supposed to stay there. You are supposed to grow in sanctification by the power of the Spirit and for the glory of God. Now, I know this is a weighty sermon. I I know that this is a weighty sermon because I don't feel comfortable or adequate to preach it because I am worse than Ananias. I am likewise a sinner. I'm not adequate for this task. I'm just an unworthy messenger. But thank God that he died, Jesus died for inadequate, unworthy, unholy, unrighteous, ungodly sinners like me and like you. Let's be thankful that Christ makes us pure by his blood. That's the shocking thing of this text. That he does forgive And let us be active in pursuing righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit and in cooperation with one another as we live out what it means to really be the body of Christ, forgiven and living like it. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, I ask that today as we have heard this message that is very heavy, this message that is deeply challenging, one that brought great fear upon the early church, I pray just as I prayed A while ago, Lord, that you would bring fear into the hearts of each person who is hiding sin. That they would work out their salvation with fear and trembling. That we would not be hypocrites. That we would be a church filled with people who are open before one another. And that we fight sin together. Lord, I pray especially for our community groups over the next season, over this fall and this winter. That you would please give us the ability to go deep with one another to be able to eradicate sin with one another and for one another, that we might, not, we might not hide the things that are in our hearts just because we're fearful of our reputation. God, I pray against any kind of religious hypocrisy in this gathering that we would be people of holiness, knowing that we will never fully achieve Christ-likeness, but that you call us to move in that direction, that we would be radically more and more like Jesus each day. And Father, I thank you that you have not left us alone to do this, but you have given us immense grace in the power of your word and in the power of your Holy Spirit to draw us to yourself, to help us delight in you and to see where real joy truly lies. So Father, I pray that today as we leave this place, we would not leave this message behind us. We would not leave the story of Ananias and Sapphira in this room, but we would carry it with us, recognizing that we are desperately in need of grace, that we are Ananias, we are Sapphira, And without your mercy, Lord, we would have been dead a long time ago. But by your grace, Lord, you give us the strength to carry on. Help us, Lord, to be people of repentance who pursue holiness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.